North Otago. It's rich in history and strong in character. And you have found the podcast that celebrates all that is good within our district. Join Gary and Damien every week as they either interview a legend or someone who is putting North Otago on the map yet again. North Otago legends, up-and-comers, and a bit of history. The name says it all. Good morning, Mr. Kircher. How you doing? Good morning. I'm very well. That's the story. And you? Yeah, no, actually going really good at the moment. Things, everything's ticking along really nicely, so... Yeah. Good to hear. Yep. And we're, the weather's warming up. You get a good frost, but, you know, you get a good day, don't you, Gary? You do indeed. Yeah. And great to be back here again for another podcast. Yep. Yep. Um, a few people commenting online with a few of the questions we've been asking. So that's pretty good. So we might have to have a um, giveaway or a prize or something one day soon. What do you think about that? Oh, this sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, today, I'm really I'm looking forward to talking to today's guest because, believe it or not, every time I catch up with this gentleman, I never get a word in, and he does all the talking, so I get to ask him a question. The only reason I don't get a word in, he's my dentist, and uh, <laughs> he's got a draw, or he's doing something, and I can't talk, so it's good to be able to ask him some questions today. So today, I look forward and, uh, to hearing uh, what he has to say, and that is Nick Shearer. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, good morning to you guys as well. <laughs> yeah. Good morning, Nick. Yeah, great to have you here. Great to ha- yeah, it's yeah, great to have you here and to um, yeah be able to talk a wee bit about oh, some of your your hobbies and so forth. Uh, bit of climbing and in, included in there. Yeah, no, actually, this um, you'll be surprised, North Otago, when listening to this, um, some of his achievements and what he's actually done, and just w- how far his passion has taken us. But the first question we have to ask you. Were you born in North Otago? I was born in Omri. There we go. Good start. Um, went to school at Oamoa School, which is now closed, mm-hmm. and then Intermediate, and then Waitaki Boys High School. Yeah. Who was the principal at Oamoa at the time? It was uh, Mr. Potter, Mr. Potter. Evan Potter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And good memories, fond memories of school? I really enjoyed uh, school. Yeah, I, 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 Mr. Potter was a great teacher, and there were others who were there too. Ian Cleland, um, and I did enjoy school. Yeah, I mean, Omo was quite a small school. It had a really good playing field. I can remember, you know, kicking balls over the goalposts and swimming mm-hmm. in the swimming pool. And yeah, um, you know, uh, I still know some of the people who I went to school with there. That's good stuff. And um, so intermediate school and, and then Waitaki Boys. So, um, yeah, I mean, you, you you have done a lot of climbing and so forth, but did, was it in those, you know, your growing up years that you, you really started getting into that? Was it Did school play any factor in that? Oh, not really. I think uh, I, I was always reasonably athletic in that, you know, I've got little certificates for getting, you know, first in the – in the 30 metre sprint. But as I got older, uh, I, I didn't really do a lot of um, um, endurance type sports. I played hockey uh, right up until high school um, and, and tennis and uh, squash eventually. And in the weekends, we used to, um, 
do a lot of skiing with the family. So I didn't really get into a lot of weekend sports. Mm. Also, Dad was a keen hunter and he used to take me along hunting. So um, that didn't involve any tramping and climbing, though. I didn't do that until I went to university. Right. Yeah. Oh, very good. So when you say skiing, we're talking snow skiing, water skiing, or both? Or both. Yeah. yeah, water water skiing in summer, snow skiing in winter. Yep, and so your your favourite mountains to ski on, like and uh, favourite lakes. Uh, we've holidayed in Wanaka for most of most of my life. Yeah, and so that's probably my favourite lake. Yeah, uh, favourite mountain would be the the local mountain, Triple Cone. Yeah, we, we've skied since it opened in the um, sort of mid nineteen seventies, but before that, it was Coronet Peak. Okay, yeah. I was very lucky that Dad was a keen skier and. One of us claims to fame that he skied something like 18 weekends in a row. Yeah, and also, um, my mother never let him forget that he was away skiing when my oldest sister, their first child, was born. And <laughs> in the days before cell phones, he arrived home on Monday night to, to find out he was a father. Yeah. Oh. Grandfather, yeah. yeah. Um, I, now, I know your father was very much involved in the North Otago jet boat. Um, club helped set it up at the start. Is that correct, or yeah. one of the founding members? He he, he probably would have been. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In fact, that connection is one of the reasons um, I got into mountaineering. Yeah, he 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 started jet boating because he was very good friends with Bruce Gillies, one of the um, the Gillies family in in Omaru, and also Harry Stevenson, who who was a farmer at um, Kiora. He um, they had jet boats and uh, they. Had, Became a passionate jet boater and, you know, uh, fishing on the Waitaki River, just playing around. And in those days they used to try and – there weren't that many boats around and they'd try and be the first to ever boat up rivers or to, you know, it was always a competition to see who could get the furthest. So Your think, father would win a lot. I believe it was the shape of his, the whole of his boat and he could go places that other people couldn't go. And I think he was notorious for saying, follow me, and then having to go around and push them off the rocks. He'd get through okay, and then, then they'd get stuck halfway up the Waitaki somewhere or something like that. You remember a lot of times out on that river having a bit of fun, do you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. My school years were spent out on the river, you know, yeah. um, helping push the boat off single things <laughs> and oh. actually chop it, chopping it out of willow trees. And yeah, dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Have you still, has Dad still got that old, it was an old... Hamilton jet or it was a th- that particular boat probably was a jet setter which was yeah. made locally by the um, Case Bishops and his fiberglass industries. Yeah, but when Dad died about uh, in two, the year two thousand and, and I got to look after the boat, my sisters weren't interested in it. Oh. So in fact, <laughs> I've I've had it all those years, and a couple of years ago when, when the first lockdown came along, I, I decided I'd try and fix some of the damage to the hull, and and but it was. It was actually a write-off. So um, it's like Granddad's axe now. It's the same boat, but it's got a new hull. Yeah. <laughs> and a new motor. Yeah, and a new motor. <laughs> yeah. And a new trailer. But otherwise it's the same boat. Yeah. <laughs> got, the, got the same memories, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's very cool. So um, you left uh, Waitaki Boys and went to university. What, was that in Dunedin or Christchurch? or Dunedin. You? Yeah. No, I, I went down um, in 1970. Seven, I think, and uh, did a year of health sciences, got into dental school and spent four years there. Yeah. And that was always the plan when you always wanted to come back and be a dentist or was that 
It was. Your dad yeah. had convinced me that it was the right thing to do. Yeah. It, 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 oh, he always used to say that it was, uh, you know, at five o'clock, you put your tools down and go home and um, you didn't have to, you know, after hours wasn't really uh, intrusive. And um, he said, you, you know, you can you can always get a job and, and, and then do the things you want on the weekends. And, yeah, good advice. So, Very yeah, good I had advice. thought because I originally thought I might want to do medicine, but um, then he could see he looked around all his doctor friends and he said, "Look at them; they hardly ever get out anywhere. They're working too hard." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so I, some yeah, good I was, advice. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I was right. I was intent on doing dentistry right from the start. And they have they still have a limited intake each year. So my very first year at university, I worked really hard and got in with no problem. Once you're in the school, it's it's um, it's easy to stay on the tracks. Mm. Yeah. So you'd done well at high school with um, what, chemistry, biology, those sorts of sciences? Sciences were my thing, yeah. Yeah, very good. And and you've enjoyed your career of, of being a dentist? I mean, is it, is it – it's obviously has given you the time to go and do some of these other things, but, you know, you, you, you get – I guess you get to, to meet people and get to know people um, reasonably well. Well, you do. It's, 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 it's very rewarding because um, – you know, I suppose the aim of the job is to help people keep their teeth all alive. And, and in my experience, because I've seen so many people come through the door and then out the door and then, you know, and, you know, and live their whole life and keep their teeth, we we very rarely have to um, to make full dentures anymore. There used to be mm. several sets lined up on the bench each week when I started, and now there's, there's virtually none. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's rewarding seeing people keep their teeth all their lives and, um and that's that's the best part of that. But as you say, meeting people in uh, every every year for for much of their lives means that their patients become good friends. So, yeah. I, you know, that's that's part of the reason that I'm still in the job after yeah. 42, 41 <laughs> years. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's great. And did, was your first job back here in Omaru, or did you go further afield then? Come yeah, back. Well, Dad was always wanting to do. Dad was a dentist here since 1952, so you know he'd been around a while. And then when when he was always wanting to do a, a, lo- a locums and overseas, especially England, where where it was very easy for New Zealand dentists to work in England. It's not so easy now, but back in the 80s it was, and um, he wanted to go. But it was very hard to get locums. It always has been. So when he when when he knew I was graduating that there, he arranged to go away then and for me to take take over at, at his work for um, a couple of years. So I was really thrown in the deep end and I have to thank the dentist who was next to me at the time, Barry Sligo, was a very experienced dentist and and he used to help me out nearly every day or two here I'd be wandering in with an x-ray and showing him or getting him to come down and help me with something I couldn't do. And uh, I was very lucky to have Barry uh, Sligo as sort of a mentor during those two years. That's a great way to learn, though. Yeah, I guess it's been dropped in, and yeah, yeah. and you're still there today, so it's yeah. worked out really well for you. Yes, yeah. uh, and after that, when Dad came back, I, I I was a little bit burnt out after a couple of years in the hot seat, uh, you know, without any sort of build up. So I took a, a couple of months off and did a, um, a ski patrollers course at Triple Cone, <laughs> <laughs> and learned how to blow up cornices and and you know make avalanches and things. That was a load of fun, and then. Um, I went went to England and um, got a job in Birmingham, which is where I met my wife. <laughs> right. So is she English or was she a Kiwi over there on holiday? Or well, they're, they're, she's Irish and she 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 graduated from the um, uh, yeah, 
new University of Ireland Dental School in, in Cork. But the Irish dentists used to go and work in England as well. Yeah. England uh, was a, another good place to continue your learning, I suppose, and, and it was a really good way to earn money over there too. Um, you know, when you had student loans to pay off and just things to save for, it was a great place to go to, to, yep. to get some more education. So she was working in the same practice. Yeah. Oh, very good. And then when did you get back to Omro? Uh, well, we spent, I spent a year there and I convinced uh, you know, Dara, my wife, to, to, she wasn't my wife then, she was, she was my girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> I convinced her to come back to New Zealand for a year and we spent a year in Wanaka and um, travelling around uh, doing odd jobs and um, building uh, a house actually and um, and then we went that was that was a fun year we were doing a lot of climbing she was a I sort of taught her to climb too there aren't many mountains in Ireland but um, we did a lot of mountaineering in um, England and Wales and she uh, she came back and um, we needed then we went back to England and um, got another jo- job in the north we both got jobs in the north of England Sheffield and uh, odd jobs, really. Uh, Locums in Leeds, Doncaster, Scunthorpe. Yeah. And spent another year there, got married, and then came back to New Zealand uh, to sort of settle down, I suppose. And did you get the opportunity to head over to Europe and, and climb any of the mountains there while you were over there? I did, yeah. And my boss and I, my bosses in England were always really annoyed with me because I was always asking for another couple of weeks off here and there <laughs> during the climbing season. And the climbing season in England is pretty much all year round because there's so much rock climbing in, in, um, in Wales and Scotland and Northern England. So, so we did, I did have a two-week holiday in, in Europe where we climbed Mont Blanc and some of the peaks in the area around Chamonix. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, another month off where I went to Kenya and climbed um, Mount Kenya really unusual peak it's right on the equator it's really high 17,000 feet mm-hmm. and because it's on the equator it's winter on one side and summer on the other <laughs> <laughs> you, you climb up one side through the through the jungle and then the bush and up into the tops and then um, you're faced with a big snowy face with glacier and we, we, we climbed quite a hard ice route on the peak and got to the top and and looked down the other side and it was just beautiful warm sunny rock in the summer wow yeah, that would have been quite, yeah, quite bizarre. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, you came, you, you had your time in the UK and uh, worked and so forth. You came back here, you tripped around a wee bit, um, so you, but you built your house. That was in Omaru? No, the house we built was in Wanaka. Okay. Yeah. We didn't actually finish it. That's one of the reasons I had to go back to England was to get some more money to pay for, um, just have it finished so um, it was usable and that that um, we rented that out for another few years, and uh, um, but when I, when we came back from England um, the second time, we got a, we both got jobs in Christchurch. Um, it was a really um, good 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 job up there too. We both had good jobs, and um, we had a child. My my oldest son, my first only son, David was born, um, and then um, in nineteen. Um, 89, um, we came down to Omru and Dad semi-retired. He wanted to retire, so he, so he semi-retired. He, he actually bought a practice in Waimati and went up there and worked part-time and I took over the Omru practice. And we had a, had another child. <laughs> and, uh, and then actually, and my wife's a dentist too, so 
she was having time off with the second baby and dad had a heart attack. So he couldn't work in Waimati. So she ended up going back to work and, and, and our children were sort of looked after by my mother. <laughs> and uh, um, well, we've been here ever since, really. And you've, did you keep the practice going in Waimati? We did for a few years, yeah. Yeah, yeah until it just, uh, uh, I suppose we, um, well, my wife decided to stop working clinically and she became a research uh, dentist doing epidemiology and working for the University of Otago. Where she she um, did a public health paper and then um, got a master's in community, dentist, uh, community dent- dental health. So at that stage, she she get, we 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 sold the practice in Waimati and just concentrated. I worked in Omru. Yep. Is she still a researcher now, or what? No, she retired a couple of years ago, and mm. she's been doing university papers, and now she's doing um, political studies. I think. Oh, very good. <laughs> That's a change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so one thing we really want to um, just talk about is probably some of the mountains and everything that you've climbed in and around especially North Otago, but New Zealand. So I understand that you have climbed Mount Cook, Mount Araki. How many times? Uh, five times. Five times. That in itself. Talk to us about that. That's do you, like, do you take different routes each time? Or? Um, I've climbed three different routes. Uh, the first route was up Zerbringens, which um, is a, a ridge that, uh, faces uh, the Grand Plateau. It's, it's not it's not the easiest way up, but I was you know we'd, I was doing a lot of climbing at that stage, and it was way back uh, in the early eighties. And the people the people I was climbing with were pretty ambitious, so yeah, actually doing Zurbriggs was wasn't that hard. Uh, we got to the top of a beautiful sunny day. The only problem was that sun cream wasn't very good on those days, and we got very very sunburnt. Uh, the, the next time I climbed it, I think. Uh, it might have been 1990, I think, and I yeah, with, a, with a, a visiting local uh, locum doctor from England, um, and then went. That was just up the Linda Glacier route, which was the, um, the probably the trade route, if you like, the easiest route up and down the mountain. <coughs> and then uh, the next time we went up the Hooker Valley, uh, a guy called Ross Collin, who's a very well-known climber these days. He's a bit older than me, but he's a very good climber. He's he's written guidebook to the to the area south of there and um, been on 1985 Everest expedition. So we, we climbed the Hooker Face, which you climb from the Hooker Glacier side, which was the hardest route I've done on it. It involves quite a lot of, sort of ice and mixed rock climbing. And... Yeah, again, it's very enjoyable climbing. It just doesn't feel – none of it felt that hard, but it was just a good day out. Mm. Big day. Mm. It took us about 22 hours from the hut to the top and back again. So and, you'd base yourself at the hut and then, that, yeah, that, then get up first thing in the morning. Talk us through it like a day climbing the mountain. What does it look like? How do you prepare yourself? Because I think uh, for a lot of people listening, it's, it's quite interesting. It's kind of stuff you – like you go, do we know a mountaineer? And in fact, I do. You know, you've climbed Mount Cook five times. That's that's just amazing. And could you take some? Could you train someone like you know Gary or myself, get us fit and take us up in the mountain? Or you like, there's no hope. You had to start at a young age. What's the? Uh, no, you can't. Anyone, anyone who can can do a day's tramping could climb Mount Cook. Is that right? Yeah. If you, you've got to have. The knowledge of where to go, though, and yeah. how to make yourself safe, and that's why most people, if they didn't have any experience, would take a guide. 
Yeah. And, uh, or, or, or someone who knows what they're doing. Um, and I've been up with my wife, um, my cousin, my brother-in-law, uh, various friends, um, a couple of local people. Uh, back when we were at Almoa School, we got friendly with um, um, Peter Robinson and Kevin Pryor and John Tully, who had kids at school at the same time. And and, uh, and Noel used to work for Peter uh, as a panel beater. So they got keen on tramping, and then they sort of said, oh, we want to go climbing. So we all did a lot of climbing together, actually, and um, they... And one day they rang me up when I was on holiday and said, oh, the weather's really good. Do you want to climb Mount Cook again? So we we flew into the Grand Plateau, and this was a very this is a typical way of doing it these days. You've it's a very hard walk into these huts. The first day walking up the glacier over the rocks and up the, through the crevasses and getting to the, the huts is it's a massive day out. For most people, you're so tired you can't really do much the next day. So you often need a rest day. And so trying to get three or four days fine weather and rose hard up there as well. So these days you shortcut it and take a, a, a helicopter or a, a ski plane up onto the glacier next to the hut and just move into the hut for the night. And the typical thing to do then would be to um, have a very early dinner and try and grab a few hours sleep and then you get up around midnight and get your gear on, your crampons, rope for crossing the glacier, you tie yourself together in case someone falls in a hole you can pull them out again. Yeah. And then you wander up through the crevasses on the glacier to the um, to the mountain, towards the mountain and up the mountain with a, under torchlight. And it's got, you know, you're relying on clear weather. You can see a long way in the snow and the, with a torch. And uh, and you try, for Mount Cook, you try and get to the top just after sunrise. I um, mean, the snow's all crisp and there's no avalanches, danger. And, uh, um, and it... It would normally, up the easy route, take about eight or you know seven or eight or nine hours. So you're on top at around. If you leave at one in the morning, you're on top around nine or ten o'clock, and uh, it's really, really cool. And then you've got all day to get down. And coming down is often the hardest bit because the sun's starting to soften the snow, and all the bits that were crisp and easy to walk on on the way up become soft and slushy and slippery, and the little bridges over the crevasses become more likely to break. So yeah, coming down can be a little bit harrowing. Is there a window for climbing Mount Cook? Is there a season? A season, that's, yeah. thank you, Gary. Yes, yeah. that's what I was meaning. The climbing season's summer. Yeah. And it, it, it used to be all summer, like from, you know, November right through to um, April. But with global warming, that window's becoming smaller and smaller. And generally the season for climbing Mount Cook now is only November, December. And does it get busy up there? Like, does it get a bit of a highway at times nowadays? Like, absolutely, because the that spring weather is often really volatile, and you get lots of storms. And so, in the fine periods, people will be just lining up to climb up. And then the, the, the hut that I was talking about, the plateau hut, holds forty people, and in in, in the, the the fine weather periods, that'll be full. Yep. Of private parties and guided parties. Then you have to book for that. You don't. You can't book it. No. Yeah. Okay, one of those ones. <laughs> so it's first in, first served. <laughs> Otherwise, and, take your tent. Yeah, exactly, and people do tent. And that's the most the, – there's, there's two huts on Mount Cook. There's the Plateau Hut on the, on the, on the northern side, and on the southern – on the yeah. sou- southwestern side, there's Empress Hut, which is a – I think it only holds eight. But you have to walk into that. You can't fly, and because you can't fly, it tends to really sort people out, and that hut's very rarely full. Yeah. But the climbs on that side are much steeper – 
the uh, north ridge, the, the Sheila face, the Hooker face, and the south face are all much, much harder climbs. So where 30 or 40 people might be attempting Mount Cook on a fine day in December, on the other side there might only be two or three people. <laughs> so what, what are the um, peaks have you climbed around North Otago? Or accessing from North Otago, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When you were talking about can anyone climb Mount Cook, you can. And, and the type of training that we, we would have done in the old days was just climbing local peaks here like Mount Kura and Mount Demet which are a really fun days out. And uh, um, and further afield up there, there's peaks up the Ahariri, um, Mount, um, Kelvin, Mount Huxley. Uh, quite a few peaks up the Ahariri and yep. also around Oha, lots of peaks up the Oha region, mm. the, um, Mount, Mount Ward, Mount... Uh, Makiro, Black Tower, Mount Hopkins... And they will have all given – well, some of those will have given you some experience climbing in snow and ice and, you know, because they, they'd be pretty important skills as well. Yeah, well, I think a general mountaineering, you you, you, you need to have to be competent climbing on rock and snow and and, and ice. It's, sometimes, you know, one climb might involve mixed terrain where you've got to climb the whole lot. Mm. So, yeah, and, and when you've been climbing a while, you get reasonably competent on all of that. So this, are you got any more plans of climbing Mount Cook or what's your next mountain you want to um, tick off? Or I'd love to climb Cook again because I've climbed it with, as I said before, my, my brother-in-law and, and my wife. Um, we've, we've, those, those trips are up the Linda Glacier, which is the easier route, but it's still reasonably hard at the top. And, and my son's quite keen on climbing it. And I've had one attempt with him where we only got halfway and the, the, the conditions weren't very good. It was too warm. The snow was too soft and it started raining, so we had to turn around. But he's still keen to do it, and, you know, if I'm up to it, I'd like to have another go. Yep. Mm. Very good. Yeah, and what other peaks in New Zealand? So have you uh, you the um, Around Mount Cook, um, it's always, I suppose, the aim of many mountaineers to climb as many of the higher peaks as you can, anything over 3,000 metres, and we've climbed um, Mount Hicks next to Mount Cook, Mount Tasman. Uh, Mount, Mount Tasman's a uh, little bit of a story behind it because I, I went to climb that with a, um, a good friend, David Ellis, who uh, who I knew from university and um, been on many trips with. And we, we were up there um, in the plateau hut to climb Tasman after flying in and there were some other people in the hut who were going off to climb Mount Cook, including Rob Hall, who was the guide then. He, uh, he became famous for being an Everest guide. Uh, we all got up at midnight and sort of around to sometime between 12 and 1, we were sort of trying to get some breakfast down. It's pretty hard to eat at that time of night. And and you can hear avalanches outside all the time. So um, there's constant booms and roars, but then there was just one enormous roar. And uh, Rob Hall looked out the window and sort of started swearing and said, there's a massive avalanche come off Mount Cook. And we, uh, we looked out the window and you could just see massive rock explosions of sparks, green sparks and... Um, it was quite a moonlight night, so we, we went outside and um, we were all there sort of in our socks sitting out on the way around, outside looking at Mount Cook and um, watched this massive avalanche come down right from the summit and, and, and there was such a cloud of dust actually when it hit the Grand Plateau that all light suddenly got blotted out and, uh, you know, there was a, just a, 
a wind blowing at the hut from the front of the avalanche with dust blowing in it, and um, it kept going on and on and on, probably for 10, 15, 20 minutes. So uh, Dave and I were heading off in the other direction. We we got we continued to get um, all our gear on, and we headed off through the mist and the dust and dust storm to, to, to reach the bottom of Mount Tasman. And we climbed through the dark, and when we got to um, the top of the ridge, which is called Mount Silberhorn, we looked around, and the sun was just coming up, and we looked down to see the whole of the Grand Plateau on the other side was covered in the rock fall from the top. So, and that was the, the major avalanche in uh, the end of 1991, when the Mount Cook lost 10 or 15 metres of its height. And it was a massive avalanche. It went down a couple of kilometres across the Grand Plateau, down the Hotchdetter Icefall, crossed about three or four kilometres of the Tasman Ice yeah. and started going up the other side. Right. <laughs> and so, it was about yeah, a kilometre wide, so we were pretty – it only missed the hut by about 200 metres. Wow. It so, could have been much, much worse, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was probably lucky it was the timing it was. You know? It could have been much worse. I mean, I, we didn't realise how bad it was until we, until we saw it. And then the other thing is, you know, the, the first thing that happened was a commercial flight from Queenstown – from Christchurch to Queenstown, reported seeing this massive cloud, cloud of dust coming off Mount Cook. So, um, um, they sent a few commercial, a uh, few private, you know, ski planes around to have a look. Yeah. And um, we could see them flying around. We knew they'd be interested. But we, my wife, got a phone call from one of our friends saying, "Oh, I'm really sorry to hear Nick's missing." <laughs> oh no! <laughs> because they'd rung up the hut, yeah. and uh, the people who were going to climb Mount Cook, of course, didn't go because you know they realised the avalanche was right in their way. So. They said, oh, well, there's two guys gone off into the dust cloud and we don't know where they are. And uh, we knew yeah, we were fine. We were, we were above the dust cloud and heading in the other direction. But um, it wasn't until later that day that they reported us as being safe and well and it was a bit frightening for the family. Wow. She would have trusted you. She wouldn't, would have known you wouldn't make any silly, mis- uh, well, silly decisions on the mountain. <laughs> or Well, I don't uh, Something well, like that. I mean, yeah, you're just yeah. in the wrong place. You're in the wrong place, aren't you? So if, yeah. if it had been a couple of hours later, would Rob Hill and his party have all been taken out, do you think? or It's quite possible, yeah. 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 Was anyone um, injured or hurt in that avalanche? Or no, 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 so no. It was just the timing of it probably was, yeah, the fact that there was no casualties. Just luck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, yeah, I mean, Pretty cool story. I mean, it's something that a lot of us are aware of, you know, when Mount Cook lost its, you know, 10 metres or whatever height. And, um, yeah, but to have been on, been there and, yeah, witnessed it, it's, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's sort of, it's quite, yeah, it's it's quite nice to have been part of it, really, and, and got away, you know, unscathed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Be able to tell the story, yeah. yeah. Well, Actually, at least you'll always have that over your son, that you climbed Mount Cook when it was the tallest. And so <laughs> unless he takes a 10-metre ladder up there, you'll still be higher than him on the mountain. So that's a good thing, is it? Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think one thing you were telling me about, how many peaks over 3,000 metres are there in New Zealand? Yeah, there's 24. Um I'm not going to name them all because I couldn't, but I've, uh, it is a lot of climbers' mission to climb them all. And, you know, it just shows how far mountaineering's come in that the very first guy to climb it, I think, took 16 years, uh, Gordon Hassel, um, from Timaru, who died a wee while ago. But the, the, just last year, some of really, really um, good young climbers climbed all 
24 peaks in, in, in the month of November. Wow. Which is pretty amazing. So they'd do more than one in a day? Cause, or well, I think in one, one day they traverse some sort of Mount Hicks to, um, to, the, to the top of the Fox Glacier and they did 11 in one day. So they, they again had to make use of the fine periods, and they were these these mountaineering's come a long way. I mean, our day you do the days walk in, a days climb, and then maybe a days walk out. Now these guys can do, they can run up peaks. They're really really fit. They are the super athletes in mountaineering, and that's how mountaineering's sort of progressing. It's yeah. it's really impressive. So yeah. it's a time trial now because someone's already um, climbed it, I guess. So what they want to do is do it faster than anyone else. Yeah. So yeah. what's the fastest mountain? Cook's ever been knocked off? Well, to be honest, I'm not sure the record for Mountain Cook, um, but um, I know a little bit more about Mount Aspiring, and, and um, the usual thing there, again, is either to fly and, and then climb it up and down. And the fastest I've climbed up from the top hut is eight hours, so it takes a good a good 10 or 12 hours to walk into the hut, and then the next day you do maybe an, an eight-hour eight climb or more. That's quite a, you know, it was a reasonably fast time and I'd done eight hours. And then maybe another ten or twelve hours to walk out the next day. So, but um, uh, earlier this year, some guy did it in about nine hours fifty from the car park to the top and back again, just wearing running shoes. Wow. And uh, so he ran right past the hut. He didn't stay in the hut. He no, just, just ran no, past and up the mountain, and he sort of left at uh, you know seven in the morning and got back to his car at six that night or see some of the see some of the old photos at um at the hermitage and so on at mount cook and and you know the, the climbers wearing basically suits and ties and things like that yeah it's come a very long way since that I, I'm, I'm sure you never wore a tie to climb any of the mountains <laughs> nick but yeah it, it, it was quite amazing how they managed that then, and and it's equally as amazing, uh, you know, hearing people running up there in running shoes. Yeah, they do, and it has, and the gears, of course, helped because now they've got really lightweight equipment with them, lightweight packs, lightweight clothing, mm. uh, lightweight safety gear. They can carry little locator beacons, which weren't around in the old days. But these these guys are really good. They don't tend to need the beacons. They just um, and they they fit cramp lightweight crampons to their running shoes with little carbon fibre inserts to make them a bit stiffer. It's really clever. Yeah. And they are very, very good on their feet. Yeah, they're good climbers. Yeah. So they, to, to climb Mount Aspiring in 9 hours 50, you have to average 5.5 kilometres per hour, for, you know, for, for the whole time, up steep terrain. Yeah, most people can't even do that on the flat, let alone. <laughs> yeah, they're sort of jogging and walking yeah. and jogging and walking. Yeah. So your your mountaineering techniques and so on, I mean, have you, you've improved, you've learnt and adapted along the way as well? I did a mountaineering course when I was at university at um, Arthur's Pass with the Otago University Tramping Club, and we just learned traditional techniques then, which are still used by about 99% of climbers, you know, wearing proper heavy boots, although they've got lighter. They're still pretty stiff, strong boots with proper steel crampons on them and carrying, you know, proper steel ice axes generally, and, you know, um, it's a safe, secure way of doing it. And yeah, I think my my climbing powers have peaked some time ago, and now I'm sort of on the other side of the uh, the learning curve. <laughs> and uh, I'm more trying to to help people get into the sport yeah. than teach myself new tricks. So, how many other climbers do you think, uh, are, you know, reasonably serious ones like yourself, that um, around around our district? Well, we have a, a an Alpine Club section here in the North Otago section. The Alpine Club's quite small but very it's always been very strong 
Um, and we we don't have many members. We've only got like, I don't know, 40 or 50 members, um, of which only about probably a dozen come along to climb regularly. Some of them are older and just armchair mountaineers, mm -hmm. and some of them um, just like being involved with the club, with the publications and accommodation available to them. The But the local climbers, yeah, um, well, there's people like Murray Judge who have been a very keen uh, Alpine and rock, mainly rock climber for you know decades, and uh, John Hamilton. Uh, there's um, young surveyor Jim um, Anderson who, and his uh, girlfriend Kim. They're very clean climbers. Jim Jim was actually up on Mount Cook a few years ago, remeasuring the height because he's a surveyor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I sort of Took helped him with equipment. that a little bit by getting him in touch with some guides who 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 also one of them was a surveyor as well. So. He re-measured the height of Mount Cook. Uh, and there's there's been lots of other... North Otago sections had a very strong history in mountaineering, even though we're the smallest alpine club section in the country. Um, when Ed Hillary climbed Everest in 1953, um, a local climber, you know, Harry Stevenson, who was my father's jetboating friend, was president of the club, and he wrote the letter of endorsement which got Ed Hillary on the first Himalayan expeditions with the Brit British. Mm. And um, he 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 was a very good climber in his day. He did the first ascent, many first ascents, the first ascent of the southwest ridge of Aspiring, which was a very very quite a steep ice climb, and and his homemade crampons, which he made out of cure on the forge at his farm, <laughs> and also Bruce Gillies, who was a jet boater. He was an ex climber too, and he he climbed quite a lot of things uh, with um, Ed Hillary in the fifties. Mm. And I've got some of the photos at home that. Um, his son has given me. Uh, so, and after that, yeah, there's been people like um, Limbo Thompson was an Omaru. He, he's, he was a very good climber in his day. First ascent of the south face of Rob Roy, which was hardly ever repeated. And um, people like um, oh, Ron Smoothie was a bank manager here. He few, quite a few first ascents. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, and we still have quite a strong core of climbers here in town. And, um we spent a lot of time actually on our local climbing wall at the Waitaki Recreation Centre, which was um, um, run by the club and has a couple of sessions a week where we, you know, and, and, um, local climbers will train and practice and new people will come along and try out their skills there. And a lot of a lot of climbers have been introduced to climbing through the, the Waitaki um, Recreation Centre climbing wall. Mm. Yeah, that's a great asset there. So... If someone wanted to get into climbing, the best thing to contact the club and come along to some of those sessions and yeah, get in that way. Yes. We we don't have very many regular meetings because we just we don't have a very big committee and it's hard to work. But we, we do have the two climbing sessions at the wall each week, which mm. um, is certainly the best way for climbers to meet other climbers in town mm. yeah, and get into it and learn basic rope skills. And most climbers in town are pretty good. If they find, find out you're not a cowboy and that you're in – the right reasons they'll take you under their wing and show you and take you on hikes or day trips or things like that yeah. yes for sure yeah yeah, yeah. while the the wall takes up a lot of our climb during the week during the weekends people are going out climbing on on crags um and mainly in dunedin you know around dunedin like doctor's point and long beach um sometimes uh, certainly a lot of climbing at elephant rocks done during the summer after work sometimes and in the weekends the, um, and also up at Mount Cook um, on Sebastopol Bluffs, Wanaka. Yeah, and so yeah, if people come along to the wall and 
um, form a friendship with other climbers, and there is a bond that does form when you know when you're on the end of a rope with someone, you have to to get to know them and to learn to trust them, and that's one of the reasons what I've been quite passionate about mountaineering is because the friends you make uh, become very good friends. Is every mountaineer a rock climber and every rock climber a mountaineer, or are they two different things that often overlap? They're, they're sort of two different things that have a big overlap, and, and actually the, over the last few years there's been quite a lot of, um, um, yeah, a few laughs been had over the, 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 they give each other a bit of a hard time, the rock climbers and the, yeah. the, uh, <laughs> and, and the, the alpinists. Because with the advent of extreme sports and, you know, televised, you know, extreme sports and so on, and you see people like racing up these climbing walls and things. I mean, that, that's a very competitive version of things. And are a lot of those people, are they just focusing on that competition or do they actually end up climbing real mountains and things as well? Most of the people who you would see in those competitions are purely uh, training for that particular activity. Yeah. There are there are um, some really famous rock climbers who do both, but but for the the televised things in the Olympics, they're usually just doing that one thing. They have to just train for that one particular thing. Yeah. So um, out of the twenty four peaks, how many have you climbed to the top of? Oh, I tried to. I think I've done about twelve. Yeah. <laughs> but some of them I've done several times, like Mount yeah. Cook. So I'm not yeah. sure whether that counts. Oh, that counts. <laughs> and and aspiring's over ten thousand meters as well, and yeah. I've climbed that seven times. So. That's seven times more than Gary, so you know. Um, any any plans on going for a number thirteen, another one, or are you just going to stick to the ones you know? Um, uh, no, I I probably haven't got another three thousand meter peak in my sights. Like I've 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 the ones I've climbed, I've, I'd some of them I'd want to climb a different way. Yep. Multibrin. I've I've climbed only once, but we climbed a um, a south face ice route on it, and I'd like to climb a north face rock route, which is nice and warm. And I do more rock climbing these days, so I'd probably feel more comfortable on on, on, on that. And any other uh, big climbs you've done overseas? You mentioned a few Mont Blanc and so on, but uh, been to any of the other uh, continents or whatever? Nepal. I've been to the Himalayas quite a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, um, when I, when I went to England the very first time, I stopped off in India, went to Kashmir and uh, climbed a peak there, just a, it's an unnamed peak, um, just really a trekking peak, really. Uh, and then I've been back several times. I, actually, in 1989, I went on a, I was invited to go on a lot of private New Zealand Everest expedition, which um, which was a bit of an honour. Mm. But we, we we picked a year when the, the, the we, and that the Chinese trying to banned all the foreigners from entering the country because it was the 1989 Tiananmen Square revolt. Yeah. And uh, we were we were poised to go over and climb the north face of the mountain and and we couldn't get into the country. So we just ended up climbing in Nepal for a month or so and then going home, which is a bit sad. But then again, I, I met, I've, over the years I've met some people who do quite a few trips over to the Himalayas and I've been, went in 1995, climbed a, the, the people that I go with always tried to find peaks that weren't climbed. So we did a first ascent of Panch Chuli in, 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 in northern India, just over 20,000 feet. And I've been back with the same guys to climb another peak a couple of years ago, about 10 years ago, called Sayo Kang. Um, and to Tibet a couple of times as well to really explore 
quite remote areas mm-hmm. east of Everest on the um, the northern side and also um, the Kapu Gangri, which no one ever heard of, but it's got one of the longest glaciers in Tibet and we went right to the head of the glacier and climbed a wee peak up there too. So, yeah, they've been really rewarding trips. Great way to get around the world. Yeah. 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 So the, any times where you've really felt you were at, you know, in a risky position? I, I suppose the most nervous I've ever been is, is going up Mount Cook with my wife. <laughs> so <laughs> so if anything went mountain? wrong, I was going to be in big trouble. Yeah. yeah. Just because you had extra precious cargo with you or because... Yeah, yeah. Well, sort yeah. Of actually, my brother-in-law was with me at the time too. So, and um, yeah, I think, look, I've never felt more nervous than when I'm climbing with my own family. Yeah. Uh, and especially, I mean, we got up, up okay and... We didn't have particularly good weather forecast, so we needed we get down quickly. And on the way down, it's quite classic. If you're with someone who's not quite confident on that train, you just lower them down on the rope and tell them to they find a good place to, to wait for you, tie themselves into the snow maybe with a stake, and then you climb down after them. And then um, then you do the same thing again. So you keep going. At one stage, I was lying my wife down, and she suddenly uh, the rope went quite tight, and I thought, well, she's going really fast. I kept going, but she'd actually fall into a crevasse. Oh, no. So I was sort of lowering into the crevasse. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she went to the bottom of it okay. Or, you know, no, it wasn't. It was on a, managed to climb out the bottom side without any drama. But she, she'd she hit the lip of it and um, broken a rib, I think. So, oh. Yeah. Oh, so she broke a rib? Yeah. Did you get in trouble for that? Well, not really. I mean, no. uh, the other guys were – there were two other guys with us, including my brother-in-law, and they should have been telling her where to go, and so yeah. I, I blame them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take the pressure off of it. As long as she did, blames them as well. Yeah. And she got down okay with a broken rib. Yeah, 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 that's right. Not. She was just a bit sore. Yeah. Broken, broken ribs aren't too bad. And any injuries yourself over the years? Not in mountaineering. No. Yeah, you know, <laughs> because they tend to be, you know, either very, very minor or very, very serious. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it, it is a dangerous sport if it's – if it's not done properly and you don't follow all the, the rules you're supposed to follow with weather and safety issues things. But I, I haven't really hurt myself mountaineering, but I've, done, I've broken lots of bones um, mountain biking and skiing. <laughs> and even border skiing I've broken ribs. But, did you? Yeah. yeah. Where did you manage that? Well, just going, someone pulling you really, really fast and you're trying to turn you? corners and yeah. then suddenly you hit the water and it's like hitting concrete. Ah. It's really hard to get a thick wetsuit off with broken ribs, I can tell. It would be. You have to cut it off. <laughs> Is that on the single ski? That would have been, yeah, yeah. yeah. You get your shoulder in the water or can you get... Oh, I'm not into not that quite, sort of thing. No. I, I think we've never yeah. had racing skis, so I no. don't think you lean over that. But that's probably why I fell over because the ski skidded out on from me. under you. Yeah. Oh, very good. No, this is good. I thought we, I think we can talk about this kind of thing all day, Gary. What do you think? <laughs> Yeah, well, we could. Probably yeah. shouldn't. No, I, we shouldn't. I don't know if people want a podcast that long. No, no, they did. But, this um, is good. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you ever had to use the EPIRB or anything like that to get out of trouble? Or once on a um, a tramping trip, which was invo- over Ball Pass, um, we we were with the local guys actually, all the, all the, the, the people I was talking about before who had met at Owamoa School and. Um, we had the whole family, all our families were, were, were tramping together at that stage. And once all the adults went, uh, we used to do an annual trip. And we'd got, the others had got reasonably competent, competent enough to use ice axe and crampons. And over Bald Pass is a wonderful um, trip, you know, that we two days usually where you camp somewhere near the top of the pass at Mount So you go up the Tasman Valley and into the Hooker Valley over Bald Pass or up there, or you can do it in reverse. I've done it about seven or eight times. This particular time, 
we were, we'd gone over the pass and everyone had got their crampons and ice axes and used them and then put them away. And we were just going down this little slightly um, rocky step and there was a rockfall and um, um, Lynn Pryor, who's, who's, who, who lives locally with Kevin, um, got hit on the arm by a really big rock that fell from way above. We didn't even see where it came from and it broke her arm. Oh. And it was quite a serious, it was a very serious break. It looked like she'd been hit by a artillery round. So we knew that we she couldn't walk out and um, we we didn't have EPIRBs then. This yeah. was, I don't know, 20 years ago or more. So, but we did have cell phones and the others all wandered around with their cell phones trying to get a signal and eventually we managed to get a helicopter in to, to, to lift Lynn out. Yeah. And, um, you know, she really needed urgent care and she's 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 still got her arm, but that was sort of touch and go, I think, for a while. That was another close call because it's not far from hitting your arm to hitting you in the head or hitting you in yeah. the chest or something. Yeah. That would have been, yeah. 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 And, yeah, I mean, I've had lots of close calls where, uh, we've never. I've I've been I've been helicoptered out from a backcountry skiing trip myself when I fell over and you know broke all the ligaments in my knee, um, and again we did we we were reasonably close to 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 telephone coverage there too, so it wasn't an issue to get out. But there's lots of near misses with rocks going past me. Yeah. I've had fridge-sized boulders miss me by a meter, you know. And that yeah. must be freaky. Well, it does sort of make you realise that life's you know can be quite short yeah and there's a lot of luck involved oh mm. uh, well no it's it's great you've survived and <laughs> you're here to tell us the tale so it's really good well, i have a couple of questions to finish so you said your father was into hunting was that right yes did you get into hunting yourself or have you done any of that because i can imagine you know these guys hunting nowadays they've got a quad bike or side by side and uh you know getting right and you wouldn't need any of that you'd just be running over the hills and chuck a deer on your back you'd be away laughing um, I've never really been into hunting big game apart from a few pigs and these days mainly wallabies but yeah. Yeah, having a tramping background uh, as well as a hunting background means that I'm really always keen to get from one place to another quite quickly and it makes ah. it, it turns you into a really bad hunter Yeah, yeah. so I'll get to the top of the hill and I've realised I haven't seen anything whereas a guy who might have had a rest down the bottom for half an hour yeah. sees all the game so yeah. I, I usually go out hunting it's more or less a walk with a rifle rather than quite often it's not really a serious hunting trip. Yeah. Uh, yeah Dad, Dad didn't shoot big game. He was into bird hunting, you know, with a shotgun, uh, right. quail and chooker, yep. rabbits. And I, I, I don't do that anymore. But we used to hunt ducks, which, again, is not much exercise there. No. And, uh, so these days, yeah, I love wandering around the hills, and if I can bring home some meat, that's just a bonus. Yep. But uh, I'm not a particularly serious hunter. I don't have any camo gear. I don't have a quad bike, yep. but I do enjoy the walk. Yeah, no, good. Very good. And next question, um, who's the most famous person you've ever climbed with and what one person from history would you love to, if, if they had an opportunity, would you love to climb with? Oh, that's a hard one. That's, that's so many. From um, You mean a climber from history? Yeah. Uh, well, I, have, uh, I don't really have a climbing idol, but it would, would be really interesting to have met and maybe climbed with someone like Reinhold Messner, who was the first guy to climb all the 8,000-metre peaks in the world. Uh, he's probably a bit of a hero. He's still alive. He, he's been through a lot, and he's, he's always got uh, very sensible words to say on the subject. Oh, very good. And who's, yeah, who's the, probably the most high-profile person you've climbed with? You mentioned Rob Hill, but you didn't really climb with no, him. No, I just shared a hut with him. Yeah. We uh, can, 
I've, yeah, I can't say I've climbed with anyone really famous. I mean, yeah. we just have done a lot of climbing with John Nankivis, who in, who's famous in New Zealand climbing circles. You just never would have heard of him. Yeah. Um, I should say I've climbed with my wife a lot, and she's yeah. she's pretty famous. She's famous. Yeah. <laughs> well famous done. in our family. Yeah. <laughs> No, very good. Well, thank you for um, your time and coming in today. Um, I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed uh, listening and hearing more of your stories. I've been looking forward to hearing um, quite a bit more. Um, yeah, so now that's good. And um, yeah, yeah, thanks for joining us, Nick. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me along. It's been fun. Yeah. Excellent. All right, Gary, I reckon that's us. There we go. That would be good masters training. We climb Mount Demet. What do you reckon? Well, yeah, I don't know if you'd be able to get back down again, really, would you? Oh, I don't know if I could get up. So I wouldn't worry about getting down. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but that could be something. I, I've always enjoyed it, like walking around the hills, but, yeah, my fitness is bad at the moment. But um, I enjoy just getting out and, and you know, conquering a peak or a, a, even just a mountain or valleys is, is a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and, you know, it's a great way to appreciate the beauty that we have in our country, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I just think Nick's the kind of guy who needs to um, – we talked about Ali doing a book, but also some of his photos and some of his journey, mm. and just from from the from like a North Otago climber, you know, a, a photo book or something from there. It'll be amazing read and it'll be an amazing journey, and um, it'll be good to see those kind of things kept um, for a while. And even some of the photos that has been passed on to him, some of them, you know, just put into some kind of book or some kind of where we can read it and have a look. What do you reckon? Well, yeah, it'd be great. Um, yeah, don't know what, how many photos he's got or anything, but, uh, yeah, there's certainly been some mountaineers that have done a very good job to take, you know, recording their, their climbs, yeah. but the scenery around as well. Yeah. Well, if you ever in his dentist chair and staring at the roof, there's amazing photos up on the uh, roof there. Right. And uh, the world-class photos standing. I don't know what peak they are, but it just inspires you. Right. But then you go off and have a... Something sweet and a can of coke and that and undoes all the work he does and and the dreams of single mountains on the roof. So stop drinking that coke. Yeah. Anyway. All right. We'll catch you next week. All good. Thanks very much. Cheers.